Election day is tomorrow, and polls show many key races remain close, with the balance of power in the U.S. House and Senate at stake. It's Monday, November 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, how abortion rights and inflation are affecting midterm voters. Also this hour, a look at the race for Plymouth County DA, which has become a referendum on criminal justice reform. There is another way. There's a more just, a more fair and more equitable way. I don't believe that our county is ready for the philosophies of a progressive district attorney. And the UN Climate Summit gets underway in Egypt with a focus on the effects of climate change. The G20 countries are responsible for something like 80% of global emissions. Things like climate justice and equity will have to be part of the discussion. In sports, the Patriots win. Clouds will give way to sun today. It'll be in the 70s. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Today is the last full day of campaigning before midterm elections that could reshape the balance of power in Washington. President Biden will host a rally tonight in Maryland. Former President Donald Trump will campaign for Republicans in Ohio. One of the most closely watched Senate races in this year's midterms is in Wisconsin. NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben reports Republican Senator Ron Johnson is trying to fend off a challenge from Democratic Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. Polling averages show a tight race, with Johnson running slightly ahead of Barnes. Johnson has emphasized crime throughout the campaign, blaming Barnes and Democratic Governor Tony Evers for failing to curb violent crime in the state. In his closing pitch to voters this weekend, Johnson leaned heavily into culture war issues, warning voters about a liberal news media, as well as rules governing transgender kids in schools. Barnes's campaign has in recent months emphasized reproductive rights with the Ron Against Roe tour of the state. In his closing message, Barnes also emphasized democracy, attacking Johnson for a recent interview in which he was noncommittal on whether he would accept the results of this election. Danielle Kurtzleben, NPR News, Milwaukee. World leaders are gathering in Egypt for the COP27 summit to tackle climate change. NPR's Ruth Sherlock reports in his opening remarks, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned that humanity has a choice, cooperate or perish. Guterres told world leaders, we're on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. At this conference in Egypt's coastal city of Sharm el-Sheikh, he called for emerging and developed economies to work together in a climate solidarity pact. It calls for all countries to try even harder to reduce carbon dioxide emissions in line with goals to keep global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius. He said wealthier countries and financial institutions should help emerging economies with their own transitions to renewable energy. The alternative to collective climate solidarity, he warned, is collective suicide. Ruth Sherlock, NPR News, Sharm el-Sheikh. Twitter has started advertising a new monthly subscription that includes a verified blue checkmark. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon reports it's the first major product launch under the social media company's new owner, Elon Musk. Very soon, anyone will be able to get a verification checkmark if they pay $8 a month for the Twitter Blue subscription service. It would make your tweets more visible in other users' feeds as well. Elon Musk tweeted last night that, quote, widespread verification will democratize journalism and empower the voice of the people. That's NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon reporting. You're listening to NPR News. 
in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. This election, Massachusetts voters face four statewide ballot questions. The one that could have the biggest impact is question one. It would amend the state constitution to raise taxes on high earners with that money earmarked for public education and transportation. WBR's Sharon Brody reports. If question one passes, then the state would impose a 4% surtax on personal income over $1 million. Evan Horowitz is the executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University. And he says this ballot question represents the culmination of a movement started several years ago by progressive activists and unions. But Horowitz says the opposition organized just recently. And that's mostly people who earn more money, the high-income individuals in the state, who are opposed to the idea of a surtax on their high earnings, but also worry about the long-term risks to the Massachusetts economy. A no vote supports retaining the state's 5% flat tax. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Sharon Brody. Data show a correlation between turning the clocks back an hour and a higher number of car crashes. And supporters of implementing daylight saving time permanently say the move would reduce crashes by about 2 percent. Mark Shieldrop is a spokesman for AAA Northeast. He says Massachusetts data reflect national trends. Just in 2021, for example, the number of crashes that happened in that 5 p.m. hour increased dramatically from an average of 27 per day to 41 per day. Pedestrians who are particularly vulnerable, especially at night when it gets darker, we see a tripling of crashes. To coincide with the changing of the clocks, this week is Drowsy Driving Prevention Week in Massachusetts. Development at the former site of Fort Devens will continue. That's thanks to language tucked into the state's newly passed $3.8 billion economic development plan. The area was poised to reach its cap of 8.5 million square feet of commercial space by the end of the year. The Boston Globe reports the cap will now be doubled. The development is already home to more than 100 businesses. There's a new statue honoring former First Lady Abigail Adams in downtown Quincy. The seven-foot-tall statue at Hancock Adams Common was unveiled this weekend. Adams often advised her husband, John Adams, our second president, and she ran their family business while he was away. Abigail Adams was also the mother of the sixth president, John Quincy Adams. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Paramount Network. Yellowstone returns with its season five premiere, showcasing that power has a price. Starring Kevin Costner, Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern on Paramount Network. The Patriots beat the Indianapolis Colts 26-3 yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats' record sits at 5-4, and four, heading into a bye week. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride beat the Metropolitan Riveters 2-0 yesterday in Brighton. Tonight, the Bruins host the St. Louis Blues, while the Celtics visit the Memphis Grizzlies. In your forecast, a cloudy start with clearing throughout the day today. One last day of warm weather with a high in the mid-70s. Clear overnight with lows getting into the 40s. Sunny tomorrow and in the mid-50s. It should stay dry through Friday. It's 69 degrees in Boston at 7.07. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. International climate negotiations have begun in Egypt. World leaders are meeting for the next two weeks to talk about reining in climate change and paying for its deadly effects. Rebecca Hersher of NPR's Climate Desk is covering the 27th annual United Nations Climate Summit. Rebecca, good morning. Good morning. 
How is this meeting different from the other 26? Well, uh, the calamities just keep piling up. You know, just this year, there was catastrophic flooding in Pakistan, heat waves in Europe and the U.S., Hurricane Ian. These are all supercharged by climate change. So these annual negotiations, they've taken on more and more urgency in recent years because, you know, climate change is killing people and it's disrupting lives and economies around the world. So hundreds of top leaders from around the world will be in Egypt in person. They'll be negotiating about the thorniest climate questions. You know, who should pay for the cost of a hotter earth? How to stop burning fossil fuels? And how quickly, this is the most important questions, can humans cut our greenhouse gas emissions? How quickly do humans need to cut their greenhouse gas emissions? Extremely quickly. Basically, humans need to cut greenhouse gas emissions as quickly as humanly possible. That's what the science shows. Every day and every bit of additional carbon in the atmosphere means the Earth gets hotter and that that happens faster. So one really interesting thing about this meeting, actually, is that in the last year, scientists published an incredibly detailed report on this question, and they did the math, you know, and they found that the big takeaway was that if humans cut greenhouse gas emissions by about half in the next decade, that it's possible to avoid really catastrophic warming later this century, like when today's school children are middle-aged. Oh, so possible to avoid catastrophe. That sounds good. Are we <laughs> on track good news, for yeah. that? No, no, we're not. The way these negotiations work, each country makes its own promises about reducing emissions. So right now, some of the biggest and fastest growing economies like China and India say that their emissions won't peak until 2030. The good news is the U.S. is within striking distance of cutting its emissions in half this decade, but that's not enough on its own. So here's one way to think about it. The big Paris Climate Agreement from 2015, it set a goal of limiting overall global warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius. Right now, we're about halfway there. And right now, if countries just do what they've already promised, we're headed toward more like three degrees of warming. That is too much warming. So it's a crucial moment for world leaders to really do some serious talking. What are the most contentious topics in that talk? Uh, money and money. Money is the okay. topic. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of low-income countries that are suffering really big damage um, from climate-driven storms, from rising seas, heat waves, droughts, and their leaders are increasingly frustrated because... Wealthy countries, countries like the U.S. that are overwhelmingly responsible for the emissions that caused current global warming, they are not helping to pay for the damage enough. That will be a really big and contentious topic at this meeting. And relatedly, rich countries have already pledged a lot of money to poorer countries to help with this kind of thing, but haven't delivered that money that would help with things like transitioning away from fossil fuels, right, for electricity and transportation. So that will be on the table at this meeting as well. For some reason, I'm reminded of that Seinfeld bit about, you know, the difference between <laughs> making the reservation and keeping the reservation. So they've made mm. the commitments, but you're saying they need to keep the commitments. That's the yes. key. Okay. Yes. Okay. NPR's Rebecca Hersher with the update. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks. We're going to go to Egypt now, where the COP27 climate summit is taking place, and join Rachel Cletus. She's a policy director at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. She joins us from Sharm el-Sheikh. So the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said today, and I'm going to quote here, we are on a highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. It is hard to define the urgency any more clearly than that, but are we at a point where the language around the dangers of climate change has just exceeded its power to change anything? 
Yeah, you know, as World Leaders are gathering here in Sharm el-Sheikh, it couldn't be clearer that around the world we're seeing devastating, costly climate impacts. So this crisis, it's here and now. Wherever you live, you're seeing it. Here in the United States, we've got the Mississippi River at record lows. We've seen hurricanes, heat waves, wildfires. And of course, right here where we are in COP, we're not so far away from the Horn of Africa, where millions of people are facing the prospect of famine after a prolonged drought. So yes, uh, there is no hyperbole here. We have been propelled into an era of a climate crisis and loss and damage that's affecting people and ecosystems everywhere. Then why can't nation states make the cuts to greenhouse gas emissions that are required in this moment? Yeah, so this is a human-caused, fossil-fuel-driven crisis. And the people who are letting us down are policymakers and the fossil fuel industry that has a stranglehold over the politics and the policymaking process. They are here in full force at this COP, too, trying to affect the outcome here. So these are all human-caused obstacles, and they can be met, they can be defeated, they can be taken down. We have to put pressure on our policymakers to do better and do more. So what what are the leverages what what are the points of leverage for change uh, because as I understand it they're going to come up with new goals at this summit but what what are how do you get nations to to carry those promises out when they haven't fulfilled previous commitments This is an all our collective self interest and the three top issues here at COP are the fact that the global emissions trajectory is far off track from where it needs to be. We are headed for well north of 2 degrees Celsius, as much as 2.8 degrees Celsius increase in temperature. And that would really trigger some catastrophic climate tipping points, multi-century sea level rise, feedback loops like the release of methane as permafrost melts. We cannot take those kind of risks. So it's in our collective self-interest to do the right thing here. The other piece is making sure there's enough climate finance on the table so that low-income countries can also make this jump to clean energy and adapt to climate change. And finally, the burning issue of loss and damage. Uh, those climate extremes that are affecting low-income climate-vulnerable countries beyond the scale of adaptation measures right now and must be addressed immediately by richer countries that bear the lion's share of the responsibility for emissions. And we can do this because uh, we do have the solutions at hand, and that is a very important piece to keep remembering. We have the solutions to cut our emissions. We need to get them deployed as quickly as possible. Renewable energy, renewable energy, energy efficiency, electrifying every piece of our economy that we can. And we can do this if we take on the power of the fossil fuel industry, which even now is expanding its profits as the world is burning. What, what's America's record on all this? The United States comes to this COP with one really important contribution, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which will put us on track to cut our emissions about 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. But that's not enough on the global stage because the U.S. is also the single largest contributor on a cumulative basis to heat-trapping emissions. We have to provide climate finance that we've promised and that Congress has failed to deliver. Uh, and we have to address loss and damage, which here at COP means agreeing to setting up a fund for loss and damage. Uh, is, is that likely? 
It's on the agenda here at COP. We have, it's a hard fought agenda item. We do have loss and damage on the agenda, but now the fight is for a good, solid, fair outcome. Getting the fund here at COP so that it can then be resourced over the next few years for all the people on the front lines of this climate crisis. Rachel Cletus is Policy Director with the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks for your time this morning. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rachel. Whitewater kayakers have stories to tell this morning about how they braved a challenging stretch of river just south of Asheville, North Carolina. It was the 27th annual Green River Narrows Race, which is not easy to get to and not easy to finish. NPR's Rolando Arietta was there. The Green Race was equal parts extreme whitewater kayaking and steep, treacherous hiking. Yeah, Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. (laughs) Spectators like me had to descend a two-mile trail deep into a narrow canyon. Organizers estimated the crowds at about 2,000. Hi, my name is Carlos Aranda. I'm from Mexico, Veracruz. I'm living in Chattanooga now. This was Aranda's eighth year racing on the green. I hope it's going to be good. All my friends from Chattanooga are here. We have a nice crew today. Get excited. I'm nervous. Each kayaker was timed on a three-quarter mile stretch of the Green Narrows. The most challenging rapid was an 18-foot waterfall called Gorilla. Definitely the biggest thing that I've ever ran before in my kayak. This was Christian Mullen's first time on the green. She got smacked in the eyebrow by another kayaker's paddle in one of the rapids. You know, those things are sharp. Sharp fiberglass, skin, not a good combo. An EMT patched up the gash. I'll probably go to urgent care later too, but you gotta stick around to watch the show, so I'm gonna tough it out for a little while. About 175 kayakers entered the green race this year. There's no prize money, just a trophy. And they all had to have done the narrow section before and sign a waiver that said, quote, I have been warned of the stupidity of this activity. A waiver that veteran and winner of the Women's Heat, Adrian Lefkinect, has signed for the past 17 years. I spent some time hanging out with her and her 70-year-old mom, Lori. And I remember the first time I hiked in here and I was like, are you kidding me? People kayak this, it gotta be nuts. I'm just thankful that my mom never told me that I couldn't do something because I was a girl. The race concluded for the girls and boys, but the adventure continued for the spectators as we tried our best to climb back out of the steep, rocky ravine unscathed. Rolando Arrieta, NPR News, Saluda, North Carolina. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on WBUR's Morning Edition, the outcome of a congressional race in Orange County, California, may change the way politicians think about approaching Asian American voters. It's 719. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. Committed to delivering Internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. The 2022 midterms are here. 
democracies on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us tomorrow for a live Election Day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Listen all day tomorrow and for results starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It'll be cloudy this morning, but gusty winds will help skies clear this afternoon. And it'll still be warm with a high near 77. Tonight clear with a high of 43. Tomorrow sunny and much cooler. A high of just 52. It's 69 degrees in Boston at 720. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Culligan Water. Since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Leila Fadel. In Southern California, two Asian-American candidates are duking it out in Congressional District CA-45, which straddles Los Angeles and Orange Counties. The Republican incumbent, Michelle Steele, is Korean-American, and her Democratic challenger, Jay Chen, is Taiwanese-American. Campaigning has turned nasty, and the issue the two are attacking each other over is China. To tell us more, journalist Melissa Chan joins us. She's written about this for NPR.org. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Leila. It's great to be on. So why don't you just break down how unpleasant this election has become? It's been pretty bad. Michelle Steele's campaign has pretty much suggested that Jay Chen is in cahoots with the Chinese Communist Party, and they've actually sent out mailers with photoshopped pictures of Chen holding Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. And they also aired a recent TV ad where, you have to imagine this, Two actors are playing Chinese spies and they're celebrating Jay Chen. Mm. Have a listen. Chen brought Chinese propaganda into America's schools on purpose? Exactly. He's one of us, a socialist comrade. Whoa. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and so this ad has caused a number of Asian American organizations to come out and say that this is fomenting anti-Asian racism and that Steele needs to stop. And Jay Chen's campaign, while not quite slugging it out in the same way Steele has, they've gone after Steele's congressional record on China, saying she's made some bad decisions. And Chen really likes to emphasize his credentials as a lieutenant commander in the Navy Reserve, that he's actually been in Asia in service of the U.S. military. And he says he's the one who is really tough on China. So why is China such a big issue in this race? I mean, most candidates are campaigning on domestic issues like economy, inflation, health care. So the largest Asian-American voting bloc in this district 
is the Vietnamese American community, and they can swing the election. They're conservative, with many of them, particularly older immigrants, firmly anti-communist and deeply concerned about China's activities in Southeast Asia today. And there's actually a term for this. It's called homeland politics, mm. uh, when immigrant voters are shaped by some of the political issues happening in their country of origin. Yeah. And it's something that's not well understood. There's not that much research on this and practically no polling. Uh, but when you talk to Asian Americans, it does come up. I mean, imagine, Jay Chen is Taiwanese-American. There are Taiwanese voters in this district as well, right? And, and they might be inclined to vote for the candidate they perceive as being tougher on China. Right. After all, they don't want their home island to be invaded. So what's the breakdown here? I mean, Asian-American voters, they're not a monolith, right? I mean, are they going to swing for one party or the other? Well, back in 2020, two-thirds of Asian-Americans voted for Biden Trump lost a lot of supporters with his comments. If you remember, uh, he of said course. Kung flu and he was talking right. about the Chinese virus. But I just want to point out that in California, in that same election cycle, the GOP managed to flip two congressional seats. They took them from Democratic incumbents. And the Republican winners who did that were two Asian-American women. That's Michelle Steele we've been talking about and also Young Kim. So the Republicans have a really strong ground game in Orange County. Uh, they've opened a dedicated outreach office in what's called Little Saigon. Uh, it's the largest community of Vietnamese people outside Vietnam. And so in polling, Asian Americans have made clear they worry about crime and the economy. And what I'd say is this group is diverse, complicated, and really up for grabs. That was Melissa Chan telling us about the congressional race in Orange County, California. Thanks for joining us, Melissa. Thank you. At the start of the pandemic, reporter Harrison Malkin was home in New Jersey and noticed more and more bicycles appearing outside his neighbor's garage. He's a reporter, so he looked into it. On a typical Tuesday morning, Ian Hughes is pulling an espresso shot at the cafe inside his bike shop just riding along, which is in leafy suburban Basking Ridge. At the beginning of COVID, Ian had an idea. I want to be a staple to the community first, and I want people to feel welcome. Like, if they don't ride bikes, I really don't care. His shop was founded a few blocks away when he lost his pharmaceutical marketing job. That sounds like an awful thing, but to Ian, a 44-year-old father of two, it was actually really good. It allowed him the chance to pursue his true passion, and the pandemic helped by creating a greater interest in bike riding. It took about two weeks to go from zero to like 60 or 70 bikes in a small one-car garage. So it just was like wind to a flame and it just exploded. Ian's love for biking started as a kid growing up in Kentucky. He'd take long rides with his family and one thing stood out about the sport. I'd say it's freedom. That's probably the coolest thing about riding a bike as a kid and it's still freedom as an adult. You know, I can. For example, this morning you go on a 50-mile bike ride, and I, I couldn't even tell you all the cool things I saw. Opening a bike shop made COVID a unique experience for Ian. I saw people. Like, a lot of people didn't see people. But it was great to get people rolling, you know, like, and just give them the opportunity to ride. Will Pinto was away at college when he got sick with mono and COVID and had to come back home. 
He's only worked at the shop for a short time, but he's been learning more than just how to repair a bike. You're quickly not doing bike stuff and you're working with customers and you're back to bike stuff, then you're with customers and you're back to bike stuff and then, oh, something big happens. Oh, we have to build a bike. Okay, now we're back to bike stuff. As I'm leaving just riding along, I catch Sean Jean, a regular customer who has a corporate job, but in his downtime comes here. This is what a bike shop should be. It's people that are passionate about biking, that are just good guys. I think if more people biked, it would be a better world, <laughs> honestly. The suburbs can be isolating at times, but Ian's shop feels like a community hub, a place to get coffee, fix your bike, or just hang out for a while. For NPR News, I'm Harrison Malkin in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Ahead on Morning Edition, inflation and abortion are the two big issues for voters this election. We look at how they've shaped campaigns across the country. And remember to listen to 90.9 WBUR tomorrow night for live special coverage starting at 8 and get results anytime at WBUR.org. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Boston University's Metropolitan College, offering part-time graduate programs in health communication 100% online. Learn storytelling and media strategies vital to healthcare marketing and communication. Learn more at bu.edu slash met. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Inflation in the U.S. economy remains the top issue for voters in the congressional midterm elections. NPR's Domenico Montanaro has more. Inflation continues to be the top concern for voters across the country, independents, Republicans, of course. And people are saying overwhelmingly that they uh, would trust Republicans to handle inflation more so than Democrats. So that's a really big warning sign for Democrats. Crime is also an issue that's not necessarily the top issue, but for Republicans and independents, it is a key motivating issue. If you were to do sort of second ranked uh, issues, crime is right up there. Election Day is tomorrow. The U.N. Secretary General is among those calling on wealthy countries to commit money to help developing countries fight climate change. Antonio Guterres says the U.S. and China have the greatest responsibility to lead. Guterres was speaking today in Egypt, where dozens of world leaders and other officials are attending a U.N. climate summit. Here's NPR's Rebecca Hersher. The way these negotiations work, each country makes its own promises about reducing emissions. So right now, some of the biggest and fastest growing economies like China and India say that their emissions won't peak until 2030. The U.S. is within striking distance of cutting its emissions in half this decade, but that's not enough on its own. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
We should get an update today from the Secretary of State's office on how many people took part in early in-person voting that ended last week. Now poll vote workers are getting prepared for Election Day tomorrow. Tim Donnelly is the town clerk in Longmeadow. He expects to see plenty of voters tomorrow. There's a lot of that are planning on coming in. We're hearing that a lot of them are planning on coming in. I'm, I'm expecting a lot. I'm expecting it to be all hands on deck and extremely busy. Donnelly says those voting on Election Day may include some people who requested a mail-in ballot. If you feel you want to vote in person, you can vote in person even if you have received a mail-in. You just can't use both. <laughs> Our system will catch it. Mail-in ballots have to be postmarked by tomorrow, and election officials must receive ballots by Saturday. For more on tomorrow's election, visit WBUR.org slash voter guide. Learning that Massachusetts students lost during the pandemic could cost them a collective $21 billion in future earnings. A new study from Harvard and Stanford show that students didn't retain three-quarters of the year's math learning. They lost almost half of a year of reading skills. Education leaders say learning recovery could take up to five years. The Bruins have rescinded their offer to Mitchell Miller. The Bees signed the 20-year-old defenseman to a deal last week, despite him being convicted for several racist bullying incidents as a teenager. The deal prompted backlash from other Bruins and fans. Now the team says new information has led it to cut ties with Miller. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Global Arts Live. Cellist, composer, and one-woman orchestra Zoe Keating live at the Berkeley Performance Center November 11th only. Tickets at globalartslive.org. The Patriots head into their bye week after a 26-3 win over the Indianapolis Colts in Foxborough. The next game for the Pats is Sunday, November 20th. Tonight, the Bruins will host the St. Louis Blues. The Celtics will be in Memphis to play the Grizzlies. In your forecast, there are some scattered showers across the area right now. Temperatures will rise today to the mid to upper 70s. High winds will clear skies this afternoon. Tomorrow, a sunny election day that will be about 20 degrees cooler than today with temperatures just in the low 50s. It's 69 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from ProQuest, whose website Black Freedom Struggle in the U.S. curates 2,000 documents related to the fight for civil and human rights. Open to all at ProQuest.com go slash Black Freedom. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Throughout this election season, we have been talking with voters about how they're going to make their choices. As voting wraps up tomorrow, we want to look back at two major issues that shaped this campaign. The higher costs of gas, food and rent and the fight over abortion after the Supreme Court struck down Roe versus Wade. Joining me now, national correspondent Sarah McCammon, who covers abortion policy, and White House correspondent Asma Khalid, who's been reporting on the effects of inflation. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start with the economy, Asma. So how has inflation affected the way people are thinking about their choices in these midterms? 
Well, our own polling here at NPR, in fact, leading up to these final days of the election, has shown that inflation is the top issue for voters. You know, I've spent more than a year tracking this issue, and early on it was clear to me that rising prices were a concern to all sorts of voters, Democrats, Republicans, and independents. But who people blame for inflation, I will say that often splits across party lines. Um, New Democrats say inflation is a worldwide issue, a result of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. Republicans say that Democrats mishandled the economy and have spent too much money. Uh, it is important, though, to say that I've heard this from people at early voting sites, that although the economy is the top issue, as we see in polling, mm-hmm. it is not the only issue people are considering. OK, so, Sarah, are they considering the issue of abortion? Definitely. And some groups of people more than others, uh, female voters, for example. So for Democrats, this issue of abortion gave them an early lift. We saw women registering to vote in large numbers after the Dobbs v. Jackson women's health decision this summer overturning Roe v. Wade. We saw voters in Kansas reject a ballot initiative in August that was seen as unfriendly to abortion rights. So Democrats and reproductive rights groups see this as a big opportunity and a critical moment for their issue. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on ads highlighting the post-Roe reality of abortion bans in more than a dozen states and more pending in court. People are traveling, being denied emergency care in some cases. And Democrats are warning about the prospect of more of this in states around the country. They point out that polls suggest a majority of Americans support abortion rights, albeit with some limitations, and did not want Roe overturned. So they think if they can get voters to turn out, it will be good for Democrats. And if I can just add here, you know, the impact of the Dobbs decision also varies from state to state. Um, In Michigan, for example, there's actually a ballot initiative to enshrine reproductive rights in the state's constitution. And uh, Democratic analysts told me that that has been a hugely energizing factor for Democratic voters. But broadly in this past month, polls show that Republicans are more enthusiastic to vote. And that has affected the closing arguments from Democratic leaders. They've become kind of scattershot. You know, I was out traveling with President Biden this last week, and he mentioned abortion, but it was not his primary focus. He's been touting Democratic policies, specific bills that Democrats have passed, and arguing that Republicans will make inflation worse if they take over Congress, uh, that they would threaten programs like Medicare and Social Security. Okay, but Sarah, I want to get back to something that you said just a moment ago. A majority of Americans actually support abortion rights. So as a result of that, how are Republicans framing this issue? Well, some Republican candidates have been de-emphasizing the issue to some degree. For example, Arizona Senate candidate Blake Masters toned down some of the language about abortion on his website, and he's emphasized his opposition to abortion later in pregnancy, which is more in line with public opinion. Most Americans support legal abortion in the first trimester, most oppose it by the third, although the vast majority of abortions happen in the first trimester already, and later abortions very often are for medical reasons. But Republicans are pointing to that fact and and the fact that most Americans support some limitations. They're trying to paint Democrats as extremists on the issue. That said, Rachel, Republicans are somewhat on the defensive on this point. You know, they've gotten Roe overturned. People are seeing the impact of abortion bans, including stories like rape victims or people with medical emergencies being turned away in some cases. Asma, what are what do you hear from Republican voters in conversations you've had as they as these people weigh both these issues, abortion and inflation? Mm -hmm. 
You know, I've been really interested to hear how both Republicans and independents are wrestling with these issues. And I asked a bunch of voters about this in Georgia, where the Senate race is incredibly competitive. Uh, One man I interviewed, his name is Dale Jordan, voted for Republicans up and down the ballot, except in the Senate race. Uh, He told me he did not think the Republican candidate there was qualified, but he didn't like the Democrat candidate either. And so he voted for a third party person. On abortion, I try to stay out of that debate uh, for various reasons. But at the same time, it's uh, the economy. I mean, you know, when I'm paying, going for a family of four, going to the grocery store, and it's almost $400 for groceries at times, that's not acceptable. You know, I spoke with other voters who said, despite having some very real concerns about restrictions on abortion, that was not enough to convince them to vote for Democrats. Mm -hmm. And some were willing to cross party lines for the Senate race, but not the governor's race, which, you know, I think is noteworthy because the GOP incumbent governor there in Georgia has already signed off on restrictions to abortion. So, you know, Rachel, in some ways, my takeaway here is that voters' motivations are multifaceted. Yeah. Sarah, what races in, in particular are you watching? I mean, especially when you think about where the abortion debate is most focused. So along with that ballot question that Asma mentioned in Michigan, I'm watching Kentucky, where abortion rights groups are trying to replicate what happened in Kansas in August when voters rejected a similar measure. Amendment 2 on the Kentucky ballot would spell out that the state constitution there includes no protections for abortion rights. Reproductive rights groups are trying to appeal to independent and persuadable voters there. I was in Louisville a few weeks ago, which is where I met Mike Sievert. Now, he says he's a registered Republican. He thinks abortion is usually wrong and too often used as what he calls birth control. But he wants to make sure that the law does leave some room for things like medical emergencies. So I listened in as a door knocker from Planned Parenthood was talking with Sievert. I will put no because I believe if it's saving someone's life, absolutely, as in law enforcement for several years, a firefighter for several years, but it's used inappropriately. So Sievert is the kind of persuadable voter that both sides have really been targeting in a lot of these tight races, Rachel. Mm. Then I'm also watching states where the outcome of governor's races could determine access, places like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Kansas, which all have Democratic governors currently and Republican legislatures. Also, North Carolina, there's no governor, there's no governor's race there, um, but Democrats fear that Republicans could gain a supermajority in the state house, which would enable them to override their Democratic governor. And then don't forget about state Supreme Court justices, as well as attorneys general and local prosecutors who all have a lot of authority in this area as well. NPR's Sarah McCammon and NPR's Asma Khalid, thank you to you both. Thank you. Thanks. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, in the first general election since redistricting, voters in Detroit may elect a black Republican. And the city won't have a black Democrat in Congress for the first time in about 70 years. Overcast this morning, clearing this afternoon with temperatures in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston at 743. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsyth, including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
Now, in business news, it is unclear how anticipated layoffs at Meta will affect the company's Boston-based employees. The Wall Street Journal reports that the company, which owns Facebook, is planning to lay off thousands of workers this week. Over 200 employees worked at Facebook's Kendall Square office as of last year. Gas prices in the state are climbing back above the national average. AAA says a gallon of regular grade fuel now costs $3.85. That's up $0.07 cents from last week and an increase of more than $0.30 cents in the past month. It's 744. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetics therapies teams are using innovative thinking to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. For the first time in almost 70 years, Detroit, which has one of the largest African-American populations in this country, will not have a black Democrat in Congress. Detroiters could elect a black Republican. Quinn Kleinfelter reports from our member station WDET. Shortly after redistricting, Michigan's only black member of Congress, Democrat Brenda Lawrence, decided to retire. It left an open seat to represent much of Detroit and a few suburban areas. At a recent get-out-the-vote rally inside a Detroit high school, Lawrence says she worries that the city could pay a price without a black Democrat ready to replace her. I'm the vice chair of the Black Caucus, and I know there are often issues that directly impact us that are left off the table, and if you don't have the black representation, you don't get a voice. So I'm disappointed. Lawrence says some of her GOP colleagues simply dismiss out of hand that there are inherent barriers facing African-American communities. But the Republican running to represent Detroit in Congress says he won't ignore those concerns because as a black man himself, he lives with their impact every day. Martel Bivings says he offers a GOP agenda targeting crime and taxes that Detroiters respond to once they overcome being raised in a politically blue city. Growing up in a black family, it's kind of like you grow into it, you're born into it, you're Democrats. Shut up. And some of the things that they would say, I said, you're saying that, and you're a black man, and you're a black woman, and I said, you're a Republican. They would say, maybe I am. But Bivings likely faces a steep climb. More than 90% of Detroit voters elected Democratic candidates for Congress in 2020. At a Union Hall fundraiser, the Democrat now seeking Detroit's open congressional seat, State Representative Sri Tanadar, works the room. Tanadar was a poor Indian immigrant who became wealthy by starting a chemical business. He poured millions of dollars of his own money into the primary campaign and defeated eight other contenders, all African-Americans. Tanadar says his story resonates with Detroit voters. I grew up in dire poverty. My district is 20, 30 percent at or below poverty level. Economic prosperity is very, very key. We need to bring good paying jobs. That message has traction among some waiting in line back at the high school rally. Carmen Lewis says the idea of economic empowerment attracts her far more than Bivings' assertion that it takes a black candidate to understand Detroit. We're going to vote for him because he's black. That ain't got nothing to do with it. We want people that's going to work for our city, that's going to help us grow. Because we are already struggling. We are already hurting. Stuff is high. Children are failing because of the school system. We need help. So bring somebody in here that's going to help us, whether they black, white, Chinese, Puerto Rican, it doesn't matter. 
Near the head of the line, Detroit voter Willie Wyatt says the colors he's concerned about are red versus blue. The 83-year-old says he felt eternally disenfranchised growing up in the Deep South until he watched the Voting Rights Act of 1965 signed into law by a Democratic president. I don't vote for Republicans, period. That I shouldn't be that hard on people, but that's the way I feel. I don't know anything the Republicans have ever done for a black person, or for that matter, anybody else, poor. But some African Americans fear Democrats simply take the black vote for granted. That's left an opening for the GOP, which is investing in black candidates nationwide, including three running for the House in Michigan, meaning the state's only black representation in Congress could come from the Republican Party. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. I'm Rupa Shinoy in Boston. There's another hour of Morning Edition coming up. We'll look at how, in the eyes of many voters, the race for Plymouth County District Attorney has become a referendum on criminal justice reform. And a report on the final weekend of campaigning in New Hampshire, where races could help determine which party controls the U.S. House and Senate. In your forecast, clearing skies and windy today with temperatures in the mid-70s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston at 748. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Scribner, publisher of Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr, author of All the Light We Cannot See. Cloud Cuckoo Land is about the power of books to unite us. Available in paperback in bookstores and online. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us tomorrow for a live election day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Listen all day tomorrow and for results starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Some of the most hotly contested races in Massachusetts this election season are down ballot. The race for district attorney in Plymouth County is among them. Longtime incumbent DA Tim Cruz is facing a challenge from civil rights lawyer Rasan Hall. As WBUR's Deborah Becker reports, some consider the race a referendum on criminal justice reforms. Rasan Hall says after progressive prosecutors lost in the September primaries in Massachusetts and after some backlash nationwide, the outcome of the Plymouth County DA's race will be telling. This is um, a very significant moment in the kind of life of progressive reform in the criminal legal system here in Massachusetts. Hall is a former prosecutor who worked with the ACLU and is a high-profile criminal justice reform advocate. I see it as my responsibility and duty to be, for lack of a better phrase, the voice crying out in the wilderness, saying that there is another way, there's a more just, a more fair and more equitable way uh, to, to deal with harm and disruption in community. 
Among the reforms Hall would like to see, reducing cash bail and creating something similar to the so-called do-not-prosecute list of former Suffolk County DA Rachel Rollins. She outlined low-level crimes where some defendants would be diverted rather than face traditional prosecution. Hall realizes he's trying to make the case for these reforms in a traditionally red area of the state. Because the public narrative around this system tends to default to law and order and public safety. A lot of people don't push for uh, or expect the types of reforms that are achievable. Hall points to research showing crime declined in Suffolk County under Rollins. But incumbent DA Tim Cruz questions that research and maintains that progressive reforms have not been effective. I don't believe that our county is ready for the, the philosophies of a progressive district attorney who wants to turn our court's house into a turnstile of people coming in and out of there. I think that's very dangerous. I think it doesn't work. Cruz opposes reducing bail and creating a list of crimes that would not be automatically prosecuted. Cruz acknowledges that many criminal cases involve poverty, addiction, and mental health, but he says his office already has programs to address those issues. His record over more than two decades as DA, he says, is strong. We're in an era where cases are going down. The people that are being incarcerated are going down. That means what you're doing is working, and you can continue to help your community and keep it safe. And at the same time, you can help people who have these terrible diseases, addictions, and mental health problems. The Plymouth County DA's race is one of two contested DA races this election, and Cruz points out he's beaten Democratic challengers before. I'm the last standing Republican DA, which is another reason why there's a target on my back. This is my sixth election. It's the fourth time I've been contested. I think I've had more contested elections than all the other DAs put together. This election might be different, though, says Nasser Eladrus, managing director of Northeastern Center for Law, Information, and Creativity. Eladrus says Plymouth County's demographics are changing, and the research on criminal justice reforms is positive. The body of research is there, but it's now a big, long game of trying to communicate that effectively to voters. I think voters understand that there is a need for it, but there's still, you know, there's still challenges uh, in in getting them to show up at the ballot box and and vote for it. Both candidates say they're confident that voters will embrace their vision of the role of the county prosecutor. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. New Hampshire is among the states where close races for the U.S. Senate and House could determine control of Congress. WBR's Anthony Brooks reports that over the weekend, Granite State Democrats received help from their party neighbors in Massachusetts. Much of the attention leading up to the midterm elections has focused on Senate races in swing states like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. But in recent weeks, U.S. Senate and House races in New Hampshire have become very close. And with just hours to go until Election Day, they are very much in play. I've never felt like there is a bigger difference between winning and losing an election than the election that's going to be held on November 8th. This is Chris Pappas, the Democratic congressman from the eastern half of New Hampshire. He was leading in the race against 25-year-old Carolyn Levitt, a hard-right conservative Republican who served in Donald Trump's White House. But a recent poll from St. Anselm's College shows Levitt pulling ahead. At a get-out-the-vote rally on Saturday in Manchester, Pappas said with election deniers doubling down on the big lie, democracy is at stake. 
So is the political survival of another New Hampshire Democrat. Please welcome United States Senator Maggie Hassan. Hassan also faces a tight race to hold on to her Senate seat, which she narrowly won in 2016 by just over 1,000 votes. My opponent, Don Bolduc, is the most extreme nominee for the United States Senate that New Hampshire has seen in modern history. With Republicans feeling the wind at their backs, a Hassan loss could be one of the keys for the GOP to take control of the Senate. She's running against Don Bolduc. During the primary, he falsely claimed the 2020 presidential election was stolen, then reversed his position after he won. He's called New Hampshire's popular Republican governor, Chris Sununu, a Chinese communist sympathizer. Hassan calls Bolduc too extreme. And he certainly is not listening to women in New Hampshire. Said we should rejoice when the Dobbs decision came down. Said we should get over it when we told him we weren't rejoicing. And said, by the way, that gentlemen in the legislature should make these decisions for women. A national abortion ban is on the ballot, folks. To help make their case over the weekend, New Hampshire Democrats recruited help from Massachusetts. Are we ready to rock the vote? That's Congresswoman and Assistant House Speaker Catherine Clark, who showed up at the rally in Manchester. U.S. Secretary of Labor and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh also came. There's a lot of stake. It's the rhetoric of of hate versus the reality of, of helping working people. While President Biden's approval ratings are down, Democrats argue they've had a lot of success in Washington. Infrastructure spending, a climate bill, a plan to bring down prescription drug prices and promote domestic production of computer chips. Again, Secretary Walsh. We've done a lot. I mean, when you think about because of all of the incredible legislation that was passed and the legislation that was passed really has an impact on everyday Americans. Democrats in New Hampshire are counting on voters like Carol Keefe Hendries, a retired school teacher who says she's voting for Hassan. Yes, she has experience, but she also understands how things work. Support for families, child care. I just believe that she is for all people. The next U.S. Senator from the great state of New Hampshire, Don Bulldog. Bolduc has been holding dozens of campaign events and yesterday was in the town of Peterborough in western New Hampshire. He pushed back on a number of claims, including that he's too extreme. I'm an extremist in one area, common sense. Bolduc puts the economy, including high inflation and gas prices, at the center of his pitch. Granite Staters are paying $7,600 more today out of their pocket for everyday things than they were two years ago. We have parents all over this state making choices between heating and eating. And he says Hassan and the Democrats are to blame for runaway spending, rising crime, and a series of conservative social grievances. Among them, the push for transgender rights for kids, which he calls an assault on parental rights. They're old enough to decide what sex they are? Unbelievable. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Bolduc, a retired brigadier general, has a ramrod straight posture and connects easily with his mostly conservative audience. Rita Matson, a Republican who's running for the New Hampshire state legislature, agrees with Bolduc's case against Hassan and the Democrats. The Democrats want to take away our guns. They want to mask us. They want to force us into taking mandatory vaccines. Being forced into doing things like that, that's taking away our rights. And I believe Don Bolduc is honest and true. 
Polls suggest this race is now on a knife's edge. If Bolduc wins, Democrats will face a reckoning over a controversial tactic. They were so certain that Bolduc was too extreme to be elected that they spent millions of dollars to help defeat his primary opponent, the more moderate state Senate President Chuck Morse. So now Hassan is fighting for her political life against a candidate her own party helped promote with control of the U.S. Senate at stake. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Celebrity Series. Kirill Petrenko makes his Boston debut as music director of the Berliner Philharmoniker November 13th at Symphony Hall, CelebritySeries.org. MathWorks currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at MathWorks.com careers. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 wbua Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A divided nation heads to the polls tomorrow with Republicans forecasting wins and Democrats struggling to retain majorities in the U.S. House and Senate. It's Monday, November 7th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, former President Barack Obama spent the weekend trying to shore up Democratic support. Facts and logic and reason and basic decency are on the ballot. Also this hour, a small Massachusetts museum returns items that belong to Native people massacred at Wounded Knee. They're almost a part of their bodies. So when they were taken from them, it's like taking a part of those people. And the University of Texas is closing in on Harvard as the school with the largest endowment. In sports, the Patriots win, clearing today with temperatures in the 70s. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. After a weekend of nonstop campaigning, President Biden is expected to make a final pitch to voters ahead of Tuesday's midterm elections. Biden will host a rally on the campus of Bowie State University in Maryland tonight. NPR's Eric McDaniel reports the president will aim to strike a careful balance in his closing message. Is this election a referendum on President Biden's job performance, or is it a choice between big D democratic values and election conspiracy theories? Biden, whose approval ratings are in the low 40s, says it's all about protecting democracy. But it can be hard for voters to keep big values top of mind when they're facing stress about money, and inflation has been persistent. The president doesn't bear all the blame for the economy. There are lots of factors at play, including lasting fallout from the pandemic. But in his closing arguments, convincing voters that it's worth setting those concerns aside when they cast their ballot could prove difficult. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, Washington. Officials in Arizona are investigating a suspicious envelope containing white powder that was sent to the campaign headquarters of Republican gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake. Her Democratic opponent, Katie Hobbs, is condemning any acts of political violence. I'm really glad that nobody um, was, nothing happened to anyone and, um, and that it's being investigated. And um, 
anyone, all, all leaders should denounce this kind of political violence in the current climate that we're in. Lake's campaign headquarters have been shut down while officials investigate. The envelope containing the powder was sent to an FBI lab in Virginia for further analysis. Pandemic restrictions in central China have slowed the production of Apple iPhones. NPR's John Ruich reports the company says it expects lower shipments and longer wait times for customers who have ordered the latest models. Apple says COVID-19 restrictions have temporarily impacted its primary assembly facility for the iPhone 14 Pro and iPhone 14 Pro Max. The facility is in the Chinese city of Zhengzhou, which has been grappling with a COVID outbreak. About a week ago, scores of workers fled the factory out of fear they would catch the virus, and the industrial zone where it's located was effectively locked down. Apple says the factory is now operating at significantly reduced capacity. Apple's woes in Zhengzhou are just the latest sign of economic pain from China's dynamic zero-COVID policies. And despite widespread rumors, the government on the weekend vowed once again that it would continue to follow the tough approach. John Ruich, NPR News, Shanghai. Officials in Tanzania say 19 people were killed when a commercial plane crashed into Lake Victoria on Sunday. More than a dozen others were rescued from the water. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Election Day is tomorrow with in-person voting running from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. in most communities. People planning to mail in the ballot have to have it postmarked by tomorrow and it must be received by Saturday. As Alden Bourne reports, some of those mail-in ballots won't be counted for days. Michelle Benjamin, who's the city clerk for Pittsfield, says many residents will have voted before tomorrow. All of those ballots that people are voting early by mail or in person will be delivered to the polling locations by the police officers on Election Day. She says by state law, mail-in ballots her office receives within four days after Election Day. That have been postmarked by the 8th. We will count here in office after the deadline of the 12th. It's expected most clerks will count late mail-in ballots by November 15th. Local election officials have until November 23rd to certify the results. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. For more on the ballot deadlines, as well as a breakdown of the important statewide races, visit wbwar.org slash voter guide. A string of shootings in Boston last night left one person dead and five people injured. Police say a man was killed in Mattapan around nine last night. Other shootings in Dorchester and Hyde Park happened in the same hour. The shootings come as city leaders are voicing concern about a recent uptick in violence in the greater Boston area. The Cambridge City Council is expected to discuss banning right turns at all red lights during its meeting today. Supporters say that would make roads safer for pedestrians and cyclists. New York City has banned right on red for years. Washington, D.C. passed a similar ban last month. How are you feeling this morning on the first workday after falling back an hour? The time change can be hard on a lot of people. Some thought they gained an extra hour of sleep yesterday, but many people actually lose sleep. Sleep expert Dr. James O'Brien says that's because people end up using the clock as a guideline for when to go to bed instead of listening to their bodies. Our body is at a certain time and the clock says it's earlier. So we have a tendency to stay up later than we normally would, which cuts into the amount of sleep we would otherwise get. 
O'Brien's advice is to listen to your body when you're tired. He says if you can sneak one in, a nap is helpful, but try to limit it to 20 minutes. It's 8.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. The Patriots beat the Indianapolis Colts 26-3 yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats head into to their bye week with a 5-4 and four record. In women's hockey, the Boston Pride shut out the Metropolitan Riveters 2-0 yesterday in Brighton. Tonight, the Bruins will host the St. Louis Blues and the Celtics will play the Grizzlies tonight in Memphis. There are scattered showers this morning. Those should last for about another hour. Then clouds will clear throughout the day and we'll have one last day of warm weather with a high in the mid-70s. Clear overnight with lows getting into the 40s, sunny tomorrow, and in the mid-50s. It should stay dry through Friday. It's 68 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The next two days of campaigning can shape the next two years of the Biden administration. If Republicans win either chamber of Congress, they'll have much more power to block President Biden's agenda. Many Republicans are also talking on the record about investigations, impeachments, and holding the economy hostage over the debt ceiling. The president spoke last night in New York, a state where some congressional Democrats and even the governor face tough races. Our approach is working. Since I came to office, we've created 10 million brand new jobs. The unemployment rate is a historic low of 3.7 percent. And we're making things here in America again. NPR's Eric McDaniel was with the president yesterday. Eric, good morning. Good morning, my friend. What have these final days looked like for the president? Well, he's gone to places with a lot of young people. I went with him yesterday to Sarah Lawrence College in Yonkers. He'll head to Bowie State in Maryland today. And young people have helped Democrats a lot. They helped them win the House in 2018. They overwhelmingly supported the president in 2020. But, Steve, our polling shows that, by and large, they're just not as excited to vote as they have been in past years. And polling also shows voters of all ages concerned about the economy. Despite that low unemployment rate, people are concerned about inflation. So what is the president saying to defend his record? Well, he's mostly talking about fundamental rights instead. He's talking about access to abortion, access to the ballot. I mean, you did hear him defend the economy in that clip at the top. But these are fundamental big D democratic principles he hopes folks vote on, right? He's not saying, he's saying this isn't a referendum about his performance, but it's a choice, a choice young folks have to make between supporting Democrats who might not excite them and, you know, risking that some of the 300 Republicans up and down the ticket, these are folks Biden have called out, who have embraced conspiracy theories about the 2020 presidential election, risking that they may win their races. But in a lot of ways, voters will see this as a referendum. You know, it's hard if you're having trouble making ends meet to worry about big D democracy. Aren't Maryland and New York where the president campaign normally considered blue states? Yeah, yeah, they are. There's a couple reasons that Biden's going there, right? He's going where Democrats are in trouble in places that it might be surprising for Democrats to lose. But 
you know, the fact is folks in more traditional close races in swing states, I'm thinking the Senate race in Wisconsin, Senate race in North Carolina, they may just not want the president showing up. He's not the most popular man around. He has been to Pennsylvania a few times now. He won the state in 2020. He's got close ties there. Sure. Also out on the trail and in more perilous places for Democrats is former President Barack Obama. And it has nothing to do, by the way, with political correctness or being too woke. It's about fundamental values that my grandparents from Kansas taught me. Values I grew up with, values you grew up with, values we try to teach our kids, values we learn in churches and mosques and synagogues and temples, honesty, fairness, opportunity, hard work. Okay, so a former president there evoking his Midwestern grandparents, but don't Republicans also have a former president campaigning? Yeah, they do. Most Republicans are saying this is a referendum election on Biden's performance, but former President Trump has been campaigning across the country. He was in Iowa late last week, but he's been more focused on 2024 than he is on tomorrow's election. And now, in order to make our country successful and safe and glorious, I will very, very, very probably do it again, okay? In Pennsylvania on Saturday, Trump was also campaigning there. He took a shot at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, meanwhile, has been out on the trail. He's Florida's Republican governor, focused on more 2022 issues. He's created the worst inflation in 40 years because they printed and borrowed and spent trillions and trillions of dollars when they were warned not to do it. And, you know, Steve, that's a pretty good encapsulation of the kinds of things I've been hearing from Republicans. But, you know, we've talked a lot about closing arguments. It's good to keep in mind something like 40 million people have already voted. And these closing arguments might not pack the same punch they have in past years because ballots have been cast. NPR's Aaron McDaniel, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Republican strategist Scott Jennings joins us next. Scott, welcome back. Good morning. Thank you. Hey, hey, if we just review the year here, Republicans were favored as the year started. Then Democrats had what seemed like a very good summer for them. But here we are in election week and who knows what's going to happen. But Republicans are favored. What has your party in strong position? Well, I think the return to the fundamentals of a normal midterm. Joe Biden's approval rating is still uh, charitably in the mid 40s and many places in the low 40s. That usually bodes poorly for the party in power. And number two, the economy and inflation have uh, reasserted themselves as the biggest issues. Those are the issues on which the Republicans chose to run their campaign. So it's no surprise to me that they're doing better uh, because of the way that American people have come to view uh, our economic status. Is Trump helping by talking about 2024? No, not particularly. <laughs> he's, you know, obviously he's helping himself, uh, uh, but uh, he's never been known to be the ultimate team player here. So, no, I, I think um, uh, Republicans all need to be thinking about uh, this Tuesday as opposed to 2024. And he's uh, he's not doing that. So not particularly helpful. Well, senators did not agree. We should note Senate Republicans did not agree on a unified campaign plan, a set of promises of what they do if they get power. House Republicans did put out a document. Do you think that House and Senate Republicans broadly at least know what they want to do if they gain power? Well, two different conferences, two different attitudes, and two different roles. The House, I think, is going to be heavily focused on investigations. Uh, They really want to go into the Hunter Biden situation, which they now consider to be also an investigation of Joe Biden. And in the Senate side, uh, you've got uh, still some people over there who want to do 
uh, what you would call policy making between the 40 yard lines, the idea that you could potentially reach uh, some agreement on things uh, in a bipartisan way, as long as it's not you know too extreme one way or the other. But you've got a much more aggressive and I think rambunctious House Republican majority that's all but certain to take power. And it really is focused on looking into various aspects of the Biden administration. Is it wise to start out impeaching Biden administration officials, which some Republicans have been talking about? I don't think you're going to see impeachments uh, starting out, certainly, and I'm, I'm dubious that you'll see any. I do think you're going to see investigations, as I mentioned, on Hunter and Joe Biden, the border, the pullout from Afghanistan, the origins and the response to COVID. Those things, I think, are broad buckets that you're going to see uh, investigative efforts, though. Let's talk about the debt ceiling here. Kevin McCarthy, who could very well be the next House Speaker, has said he may want to use raising the debt ceiling, which the U.S. has to do early next year, as a moment of leverage to demand parts of the Republican agenda from Democrats. There's at least one senator who's interested in this. We talked with Senator Rick Scott on this program last week. Let's listen to some of what he said. Look at the interest expense. I mean, it's just going to eat up. It's going to eat up more and more of our budget, which means, you know, somehow there's going to be a debt reckoning. And so how are we going to pay for all this? But does that mean that you would say we're not going to raise the debt ceiling, which tends to finance spending already passed? We're not going to raise the would debt I ceiling clear, unless unless the White House gives some concession on some other issue. What I've been clear is we shouldn't raise the debt ceiling unless we figured out ways to reduce costs to that extent going forward or we have a structural change so we can start living within our means. Scott Jennings, I think you know the history here. Last time Republicans tried this in a big way was in 2011. It caused economic calamity. It lowered the U.S. credit rating. Uh, are a lot of Republicans really ready to try this again? Well, Republicans are ready to try anything to reduce inflation. I mean, it's been the core of their campaign. And, of course, Republicans believe that spending less uh, would be, uh, you know, center to that strategy. So, yes, I think Republicans are ready to... Um, be aggressive in cutting government spending. Now, whether that ultimately leads to a government shutdown, uh, I hope not, because I don't think that will be good uh, for the United States. But if Republicans win this election, they'll have a strong political you hand you talk to play. About, you talk about a government shutdown. That's one tactic. But if you go after the debt ceiling, you put the United States of America into default. Are Republicans really ready to do that? Uh, I, I mean, I think some Republicans are ready to be as aggressive as possible to reduce spending. Whether that means going into default, I'm dubious that we would do that. Uh, and I think in the Senate, again, as I mentioned earlier, you have a much different attitude uh, ultimately in the conference about um, you know, what this means. But if you take over both chambers, you do have governing responsibility at that point. It becomes less esoteric and more real <laughs> about your oh. statements regarding what you would be willing to do. Well, I'm glad you talked to you. You raised the Senate here again. Of course, people will know that you're close to Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader. He made a remark recently about confirming judges. Of course, if Republicans recapture the Senate, they would be the ones to give advice and consent or not to Joe Biden's, President Biden's judicial nominations. And I believe he made a remark to the effect of finding some way to find more moderate judges. Of course, it's easy also to imagine a scenario where Republicans just don't allow the president to nominate any judges anymore. Do you think that they'd do business on judges if Republicans have the majority? I think that fully depends on Joe Biden. I think Mitch McConnell and most Republican senators think that most of the nominees he has sent for the bench and frankly, for other government offices, you know, the Senate is in the personnel business, something the House doesn't have to do have been pretty extreme. Uh, and so, yeah, I am anticipating a slowdown in this. 
If Joe Biden moderates himself, I think he could see a area where you could you could find them doing business. But it's entirely up to the president on who he sends up there. But I wouldn't expect the Senate Republican majority to rubber stamp a bunch of judges they consider to be far out of the mainstream. I'm remembering some agreements during the Clinton administration when there was a Republican Senate where Bill Clinton got some judges and some people that maybe he didn't like so much also got nominated and confirmed. Could you imagine something like that? Yeah, I think if I think if the people are reasonable, I could imagine some deals. But again, this is on the president in the White House, and he'll be under some political pressure not to moderate as he heads into his own uh, presidential campaign as well. Scott, it's always a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Steve. Scott Jennings is a Republican strategist and a founding partner of the PR firm Run Switch. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Morning Edition host Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, a new study shows that patients trying to lower their cholesterol and reduce their risk of heart disease may benefit more from statins than supplements. And in 20 minutes, royalties from the extraction of oil and gas may mean the University of Texas surpasses Harvard as the school with the biggest endowment. It's 820. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at BSO.org. And the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities essential for healthy democracy, knightfoundation.org. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us tomorrow for a live election day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Listen all day tomorrow and for results starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. It'll be cloudy this morning, but gusty winds will help skies clear this afternoon. And it'll still be warm with a high near 77. Tonight clear with a high of 43. Tomorrow sunny and much cooler, a high of just 52. It's 69 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Universal Pictures with She Said, starring Carrie Mulligan and Zoe Kazan as the New York Times journalists whose investigation helped ignite a movement based on actual events. Only in theaters November 18th. Rated R. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at Avast.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. Dietary supplements are, of course, very popular. Supplements like fish oil, which allegedly helps your heart. Doctors want to know if they're really effective, and a new study tries to find out. NPR's Allison Aubrey reports on the new study released last night at the American Heart Association Conference. As sales of supplements have increased, doctors see a trend. Patients who've been advised to take prescription medications to lower their cholesterol don't always follow the advice. Dr. Luke Laffin, a preventive cardiologist at Cleveland Clinic, says some patients opt instead for over-the-counter supplements such as fish oil, omega-3s, or red yeast rice. Oftentimes, these supplements are marketed as, quote-unquote, natural ways to lower your cholesterol or for cholesterol management. But Lavin says there's not much evidence to back this up, so he and his colleagues designed a clinical trial to compare prescription statin medications to supplements. They recruited adults who had elevated LDL cholesterol, that's the bad cholesterol. Some took a 5-milligram daily dose of resuvastatin, a statin that is marketed under the brand name Crestor for 28 days. Others were given supplements, including fish oil, cinnamon, garlic, turmeric, plant sterols, or red yeast rice for the same period. So what we found was that the low-dose statin reduced LDL cholesterol over the time period of the trial by 38%, which was vastly superior to placebo and any of the six supplements studied. Dr. Laffin says a 38% reduction is enough to significantly lower the risk of heart attacks and strokes. His collaborator, Dr. Stephen Nissen, also of Cleveland Clinic, says the results of the study are very clear. Clearly, uh, statins do what they're intended to do. Supplements do not do what they are intended to do. They do not promote heart health. They do not improve levels of the bad cholesterol. The new findings are published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology. The study was funded by AstraZeneca, the maker of Crestor, though Nissen and his colleagues worked independently on the study and the analysis. And their conclusions fit with a body of evidence showing statin medications work really well. Here's cardiologist Michael Honingberg of Massachusetts General Hospital. He was not involved in this new research and says he's not surprised by the findings. Statins are the most effective heart attack and stroke prevention drug that we've really ever seen. They've been studied in hundreds of thousands of patients. And shown to be very safe, he says. But what's important to know is that not everyone who has higher-than-ideal cholesterol numbers needs to be on a statin. Doctors use a risk calculator that takes into account age, race, blood pressure, smoking status, and other factors to help determine this. Honingberg says for patients who are not good candidates for statins, some ask whether supplements are a good option. But he says what you eat is more important. I tell my patients to save their money and instead spend that money on eating heart-healthy, high-quality food. The data are better for health benefits of a heart-healthy diet than they are for spending money on supplements. He spends a lot of time talking to patients about which diets are best, and one he recommends is a Mediterranean pattern of eating that includes lots of healthy fats, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and fish, a source of omega-3s. I think a formulation that we perhaps don't use enough is that food is medicine. When it comes to preventing heart disease, he says a healthy diet is key. Allison Aubrey, NPR News. Support for NPR health coverage comes from BetterHelp. 
connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. Wisconsin is pivotal in determining the majority in the U.S. Senate, just like it's been in recent elections. NPR's H.J. Mai traveled to eastern Wisconsin and talked to a couple of rural voters about what's driving their choices. It's a Sunday afternoon in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Producer Shelby Hawkins and I are walking around the city's north end neighborhood, looking for people who are willing to talk to us about the upcoming midterm elections. I'm Hans. Uh, this is Shelby. Hi. Hi, Shelby. We realized quickly that on this particular day, many people were much more focused on the Green Bay Packers game than politics. After unsuccessfully knocking on a number of doors, we came across a house on a tree-lined street just blocks from Lake Michigan. In the front yard, between several skeletons and other Halloween decorations, we saw signs for Republican Senator Ron Johnson and gubernatorial candidate Tim Michaels. Opening the door was a middle-aged couple, Linda Fallons and Brett Karstad. They welcomed us inside their home to share their thoughts. We are both conservatives, uh, born and raised that way. Fallons was wearing a Packers t-shirt. She owns an environmental consulting firm in Milwaukee. She supports Senator Johnson because of his background as a business owner. I'm fiscally uh, conservative. I don't like uh, overspending. I don't like large government. I would prefer to have the government streamlined quite mm-hmm. a bit. I also think there has to be a lot of focus on small businesses and supporting them and recruiting them. In addition to economic concerns, Felons and Karstedt talked about election integrity and reproductive health. Democrats hope abortion rights will engage their base. And it's an important issue for this conservative couple, too. We're pro-life. We feel that a lot of uh, abortion is birth control. I'm very much opposed to that. I think it's ridiculous to assume uh, that anyone would be opposed to someone having abortion that would affect either the life of the mother or the life of the baby. Wisconsin is a politically divided state. Trump won here in 2016 and Biden in 2020. That means being public about your politics often has repercussions. During the last election, the couple's Trump sign was vandalized. But our liberal neighbors helped us put the signs back up. (laughs) So the neighborhood is the neighborhood. We all get along and we all respect each other. Felons and Karstedt believe their community is strong enough to bridge those partisan divides, no matter Tuesday's outcome. HJMI, NPR News, Sheboygan County, Wisconsin. This is NPR News. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Up next, Twitter now says it will wait until after the midterm elections to rule out a new monthly charge for its blue verification check. The charge is one of many changes brought by the tech giant's new boss, Elon Musk. It's 8.30. WBUR's Last Seen podcast returns for a third season this month with surprising new mysteries about people, places, and things that have gone missing. Follow Last Seen wherever you listen to podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. 
live from NPR News in Washington. I'm Dave Mattingly. Candidates in the congressional midterm elections are making their final pitches to voters before Election Day. President Biden will be in Maryland this evening to campaign for Democratic candidates. They include Wes Moore, who's trying to become the state's first black governor. Former President Donald Trump will be in Ohio today to campaign for Republican Senate candidate J.D. Vance. He and Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan are competing for the Senate seat now held by Rob Portman. The Republican senator is not seeking re-election. Inflation in the U.S. economy remains the top issue for voters. NPR Sarah McCammon says abortion rights are a primary concern for many Democratic voters. Democrats and reproductive rights groups see this as a big opportunity and a critical moment for their issue. They've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on ads highlighting the post-Roe reality of abortion bans in more than a dozen states and more pending in court. People are traveling, being denied emergency care in some cases. The Wall Street Journal reports Facebook's parent company, Meta, is preparing to announce large-scale layoffs affecting thousands of employees. The journal says an announcement could come as early as Wednesday. In October, Meta said it expected a weak final quarter of the year and higher costs next year. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The U.S. Senate race in New Hampshire could play a key role in which party has a majority in Washington. WBUR's Anthony Brooks was in New Hampshire this weekend where Granite State Democrats got help from fellow Democrats in Massachusetts. Are we ready to rock the vote? Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark rallied in Manchester for Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, who's in a tough re-election battle against Republican Don Bolduc. Joining her was Secretary of Labor and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, who says despite a sour economy, Democrats have had plenty of success in Washington. We've done a lot, and the legislation that was passed really has an impact on everyday Americans. Boldick was also on the move this weekend, blaming Democrats for high inflation and gas prices that are hurting New Hampshire families. We have parents all over this state making choices between heating and eating. In the last race for this seat, Hassan won by just over 1,000 votes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Starting today, hunters will be able to kill deer in the Blue Hills Reservation. The Department of Conservation and Recreation says thinning out the population will help plants and trees regrow. The program runs every Monday to Thursday through November 23rd. The Boston Symphony Orchestra is in Japan for its first international tour since the start of the pandemic. Musicians will be there for six concerts in the next week. Shows will be held in Tokyo, Osaka, Yokohama, and Kyoto. The last time the BSO performed in Japan was in 2018. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, beginning November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The Patriots topped the Indianapolis Colts 26-3 yesterday in Foxborough. The Pats are heading into their bye week. Their next game is November 20th. Tonight, the Bruins will host the St. Louis Blues. The Celtics are on the road tonight against the Memphis Grizzlies. 
and the owner of the Red Sox is looking to sell its English soccer team. The Athletic reports that Fenway Sports Group is seeking buyers for Liverpool FC. Forbes valued the team last year at $4.1 billion. In your forecast, cloudy this morning and warm. Temperatures will rise to the mid to upper 70s. High winds will clear skies this afternoon. Low, low 40s tonight. Tomorrow, a sunny election day that'll be about 20 degrees cooler than today with temperatures just in the low 50s. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Twitter has started advertising a new monthly subscription that includes a blue check mark, which is the symbol that indicates the platform has verified a user's identity. The notice reads, power to the people. It is the first major product launch under the social media company's new owner, Elon Musk. Musk has so far gutted Twitter's workforce and also promised over the weekend to permanently suspend anybody impersonating somebody else on Twitter. Many people on Twitter have been pretending to be Elon Musk. NPR's Raquel Maria Dillon is here to tell us what all these changes could mean, especially so close to the end of the midterm elections. Good morning, Raquel. Good morning. Okay, explain what exactly is included in this subscription service. Right now, when you see a little check mark on Twitter, it means Twitter has verified the identity of the person behind that account, that they are who they say they are. So that's how we know at Rachel NPR is really you and you're tweeting on behalf of yourself and NPR. Right. Very soon, anyone will be able to get a verification check mark if they pay $8 a month for the Twitter Blue subscription service. It would make your tweets more visible in other users' feeds as well. Elon Musk tweeted last night that, quote, widespread verification will democratize journalism and empower the voice of the people. However, the new verification product isn't quite ready for prime time. The New York Times reported that Twitter Blue with verification won't roll out till after Election Day. Okay, so you have to pay for a verified check mark, but does that do anything to decrease fraud on the platform? Well, people are very concerned about that, especially at this moment. I've been speaking to civil rights activists and tech watchdog groups all weekend, and they are freaked out. One of them is a former product manager at Twitter, Eddie Perez, left in September. And now he's on the board of the OSET Institute, which does nonpartisan research on election technology. He said Musk's idea of Twitter as a digital public square is quaint because the stakes are just much higher. A social media platform like Twitter is a landscape for information warfare. It is adversarial. We know that there are nation state actors that are trying to distort and manipulate the platform. They're trying to spread disinformation. Perez says content moderation is complicated, labor intensive. And at Twitter during elections, people from other teams pitch in. So you can't just cut staffing in half and maintain the same level of service. Right. 3,700 people. I mean, that's that's a lot of folks, many of whom I assume were in the business of content moderation. 
Well, it's too soon to say what the actual effects are, but here's just one observation from Common Cause, the nonpartisan government watchdog group. I spoke to an analyst there and she said there is a lag lately when they report disinformation to Twitter. Usually Twitter staffers are responsive so close to elections, but now they've gone dark. Twitter's head of safety and security tweeted some reassurances. He said a smaller portion of content moderation staffers lost their jobs, 15% laid off in his department as opposed to an average of 50% organization-wide. But, you know, this is Elon Musk here, so it does get weird. Multiple news outlets are reporting that Twitter is asking some folks they laid off on Friday to come back. It just goes to show how hasty this downsizing was. And here's Raquel Maria Dillon. Thanks, Raquel. You're welcome. So when it comes to college endowments, Harvard has been on top for decades. But another school is nipping at its heels, a public university founded almost 250 years later with a secret weapon. NPR's David Gura reports. The rival is the University of Texas, with an endowment valued at about $42 billion, according to new data. Just a few billion shy of Harvard, which still has an edge of $50.9 billion endowment at last check. But UT has been catching up. And economic consultant Ray Perryman says that's thanks in part to money it gets from two million acres of land in West Texas. Well, if I'm not mistaken, it's about three times the size of Rhode Island. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very big expanse of land. Huge tracts that are home to more than 10,000 active oil and gas wells. The state also charges royalties on the energy that's extracted there. Production has gone up significantly in recent years, and uh, and as a result, the uh, the lands are now able to to literally generate hundreds of millions of dollars a year uh, in endowment for the uh, for the university systems. For both the University of Texas and Texas A and M, it pays for scholarships and research and faculty salaries. Well, that income was a ballast recently during a tough stretch when stocks sank by more than ten percent. During that period, oil climbed to near record prices. Charlie Eaton studies how universities spend and make money. He's a sociologist at the University of California, Merced. And Eaton says that land and those revenues set Texas apart. In a lot of ways, the University of Texas is more like a sovereign wealth fund for a place like Norway. Recently, schools like Harvard and Yale have put less money in natural resources, traditionally seen as an inflation hedge. In the years leading up to the pandemic, inflation was not really an issue. And students and alumni worried about climate change have campaigned for colleges and universities to divest from fossil fuels. But there can be a trade-off to doing that, according to Chris Brightman. He used to run the University of Virginia's endowment. When one narrows the opportunity set in pursuit of an objective other than uh, the best risk-adjusted returns. What he means is, if your goal is not just to make the most money... uh, There are going to be, perhaps over the long run, some cost... Uh, to doing so. Harvard's endowment shrank by almost 2% in the fiscal year that ended in June. It lost more than $2 billion. And the head of its endowment noted in its annual report that while a lot of college endowments and pension funds leaned into the conventional energy sector when markets slumped, Harvard did not, given, he wrote, its commitment to tackling the impacts of climate change. Margaret Chen is the global head of the endowment and foundation practice at the consulting firm Cambridge Associates. And she says colleges and universities are figuring out how to transition away from traditional energy. The thing about divestment from fossil fuels is I would say that it is important and it is a continuing trend. 
it is manageable. Chen says a school can have a diversified portfolio that performs well that's also fossil fuel free. That's an admirable goal, according to Charlie Eaton, and one he insists that makes sense from both a moral standpoint and a fiduciary one. One thing to remember is endowments are really managed to grow as much as possible in the long run. And in the long run, our economy is only going to thrive as a as a fossil fuel free economy. That may seem pretty far off, but Texas is slowly taking steps to prepare for that transition. As energy companies continue to pump millions of barrels of oil and natural gas from that land in West Texas every year, they're also recognizing it's a great place to harness energy from the wind and the sun. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Next year on Morning Edition, more than 130 years ago, items were taken from the bodies of Native people killed at Wounded Knee. Those items ended up in a small Massachusetts museum, and they have now finally been returned. In your forecast, it'll be overcast this morning, clearing this afternoon with some high winds. It's our last unusually warm day with temperatures in the mid-70s. Tonight, those fall to the low to mid-40s. Tomorrow, clear skies and temperatures only in the low 50s. There may also be some gusty winds. It's 69 degrees in Boston at 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Now in business news, Massachusetts employers are increasingly concerned about the state of the economy. That's the finding of a new survey from the trade group Associated Industries of Massachusetts. WBUR's Jonathan Kane reports. The group's Massachusetts Business Confidence Index fell for a second straight month in October. The measure of employer sentiment is just barely in optimistic territory. Associated Industries Vice President Christopher Gearin says businesses surveyed are feeling less bullish about their future. What that indicates to us is uncertainty, caution among employers as they see the economy changing, as they see inflation continuing, uh, supply chain issues continuing to be an issue. Guerin says rising interest rates are hurting industries that rely on home sales and making it harder for tech companies to find investors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Jonathan Kane. It's 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. After years of negotiations between a tiny museum in the town of Barrie and descendants of people killed in the Wounded Knee Massacre, items that belong to those victims are being returned. 
Moccasins, pipes, and other items were returned during an emotional ceremony over the weekend. They're now on their way home to South Dakota from Massachusetts. Nancy Cohn reports. As a large crowd filled the seats in the Ruggles Lane School gym, Cedric Brokennose of the Oglala Lakota Nation says he learned what happened at Wounded Knee from his grandmother, who learned it from her father, who survived the massacre as a boy. What happened as he grew up as a 12-year-old in the boarding schools and mission schools because there's no parents. His parents were killed there at Wounded Knee. In the late 1800s, Frank Root, a traveling showman, donated items to the museum. Evidence suggests at least some had been removed from the bodies of those massacred at Wounded Knee. Standing outside the school, Michael Hecro from Pine Ridge Reservation says the objects still embody the spirit of those killed by U.S. soldiers in 1890. They are more than just objects. They're almost a part of their bodies. So when they were taken from them, it's like taking a part of those people. He points out the items were not only taken, but displayed. He says they need to be returned so the spirit of the person who died can cross over into the next world. The more than 100 items have been packed in archival materials to protect them. So on Saturday, an empty box with a list of items taped to it was symbolically handed over. Today we gather here for a major step towards healing. That's Richard Camp, a Lakota spiritual leader who told the crowd getting the items back is important, especially for descendants of those killed. They carry intergenerational pain. But today we pray that there will be a closer and then there will be a new generation of all walking together. Moves Camp says it's rare for his people to fill a sacred pipe in public, but on this day they did and prayed for future generations. Since at least the 1990s, members of the tribe have visited Barry asking for the items to be returned. The museum resisted, questioning where they came from and who they should be returned to. Native leaders stepped up public pressure earlier this year, and the museum board voted to begin the repatriation process. Now, board member Ann Malis says it's her great honor to return the objects to the Lakota. A nation that has suffered a great wrong at the hands of the U.S. government for the unwarranted slaughter of its innocent people. And for that, I am truly sorry. President of the Oglala Lakota Nation, Kevin Killer, told the crowd, we have to have these difficult conversations. But we shouldn't run away from them, honestly. You can't change what happened in the past, I know that but we can change what the future looks like. Before singing a prayer, Ivan Looking Horse had a request for the crowd. We know of any other sacred items out there, we would like to get them returned to our nation again. Some of them are probably overseas, so we want to get those also returned. As the ceremony ended, the Oglala Lakota wrapped handmade quilts around the members of the museum board. Cedric Brokennose is driving the items back to South Dakota, 
Young people from the tribe are going with him so they can pass this story on to future generations. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. Coming up, the Marketplace Morning Report has new data on what it actually costs to get citizen-led measures on ballots across the country. And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Robin Young is here in studio to fill us in about what they're going to be talking about today. Hi there, Robin. Hi there to you. And of course, let's see, what is today? It's the day before the midterms. And Mm so we're going to be taking a look at uh, that, every aspect of that, including how you should watch the midterm returns, Mm -hmm. you know, what you you should be thinking about that way. We're also, though, going to be taking a look with his biographer at Elon Musk. And we had (laughs) planned on this before his hissy fits over the weekend. You know, he now owns Twitter. Mm -hmm. And over the weekend, he said that anybody who was doing fake Elon Musk accounts is going to be banned, you know, cat. Griffin and Valerie Bertinelli and others. And this is just so petty. This is a staple of Twitter for those who aren't on it, people who do these parody accounts. Mm -hmm. I think Ted Cruz has like 20 of them. (laughs) And I wonder, does this mean that anybody doing a parody account, you know, is is banned? So we'll follow that. But then, are you a fan of the Black Panther movies? I really am. Absolutely. And the Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, the new one is coming this week. I can't wait. You know what? It's worth the wait. I got to see it. And people wonder. You got to see it. Yes, because we're going to have Angela Bassett, who who, of course, plays the uh, Queen Romanda. And people wondered, what's the movie going to be like without the late, great Chadwick mm-hmm. Boseman? I'll just say, it's not without him, in a way. So stay oh, tuned. Oh, that's a tease. Yes, yeah, stay tuned at noon. That's quite a tease. Thank you, Robin. Mm-hmm. That's here and now, today at noon. It's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. It's the last chance to catch the show critics are calling outstanding, superb, and a masterful production. August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone is available in person at the newly renovated Huntington Theater through November 13th and digitally streaming through November 27th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. The 2022 midterms are here. Democracy's on the ballot. Enough is enough is enough. We need conservative fighters that will go on offense. Tuning out is not an option. Join us tomorrow for a live election day special. As polls close across the country, we'll bring you updates from across the U.S. and analysis from our experts. Election Day 2022 from NPR News. Listen all day tomorrow and for results starting at 8 on 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Quote from the U.N., we're on the highway to climate hell. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, HR and workforce management solutions designed to turn a business from a workplace into a work of art. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Fidelity Wealth Management, helping create plans for a client's full financial picture. Fidelity.com wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. I'm David Brancaccio. Representatives of some 200 countries are at the United Nations Summit on Climate Change underway in Egypt now. The U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres told the conference, here's the quote, we are on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator. Among new approaches, the Financial Times is reporting today that the U.S. will back a new form of carbon credit in which private sector companies pay poorer countries to convert to lower carbon alternatives. 
and a kind of reparations are on the agenda. The BBC's Matt McGraw reports from the Red Sea city of Sharm el-Sheikh. Climate change is the defining issue of our age, Mr Guterres told the assembled leaders, and we are losing the fight of our lives. The Secretary-General was heartened that negotiators here have agreed to discuss the contentious issue of loss and damage as part of the official agenda. Developing countries are seeking a new fund to pay for the problems they are suffering now and want richer countries to support it because of their historic role in causing climate change. This question of who pays has also been exercising the French President Emmanuel Macron. Speaking on the sidelines of this meeting, he called on the US and China to step up and pay their fair share. The EU was at present the only one footing the bill. More speeches by leaders will follow, but many attendees here say they are fed up with fine words. They say now is the time for action and money. Matt McGraw reporting from the UN Climate Summit. Now to the possible rail strike in the U.S. Another union has voted to ratify a new labor agreement with major freight railroad companies, including CSX and Union Pacific. That's seven unions voting yes. But there are five other unions, which are still a question mark, and there's a mid-November deadline. Marketplace's Nova Safo has that. The International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers announced its ratification on Saturday after workers won additional concessions from railroads, such as a cap on health insurance premiums. The original tentative deal between unions and companies reached two months ago also included a 24% pay raise, but that has not been enough to win ratification from all 12 unions involved. Two have rejected their deals largely over concerns about quality of life issues such as paid sick leave. Those unions are back negotiating with the companies. Three other unions have yet to vote on their agreements. All 12 will need to ratify by November 19 to avert a strike, which railroads say could cost the U.S. economy $2 billion a day. Congress could also block a strike and impose terms on workers. I'm Novosafo for Marketplace. Markets Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all up three-tenths of a percent across the board. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Prisma Sassy from Palo Alto Networks. Secure access for hybrid workforces wherever work happens. The future of secure access is ZTNA 2.0. It's zero trust with zero exceptions. More at paloaltonetworks.com. And by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And by the United States Postal Service, offering postage stamps for purchase at more than 40,000 supermarkets, drugstores, office suppliers, and wholesale clubs. A month ago, we brought you a series on money, politics, and whether campaign donors can be secret Santas who spend big, but voters never know it's them. The coverage centered on Arizona, where voters decide tomorrow if bigger individual or corporate donors of campaign money have to reveal their names. The Arizona legislature was reluctant to address the issue, and this got to the ballot because advocates gathered enough signatures. People in just over half of U.S. states can use petitions to get matters before voters on Election Day. And the election and politics resource Ballotpedia has been doing the numbers on what these cost. Ryan Byrne is managing editor at the website. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It's not every state that allows these, but in the ones that do, how expensive is it? The signature drive process can be fairly expensive. In 2022, the average signature drive was over $4 million. This is actually an increase from 2020 when it was just over $2 million. It doesn't necessarily appear that 2022 is an exception. There's been a trend line since at least 2016 of petition drives becoming more expensive. So it's not just 
ambient inflation, they had to buy more expensive gas for their cars. Right. I'm sure that plays somewhat of a role this year, but there are a number of factors that could be affecting those changes in the cost of gathering signatures. Like what? I'm also thinking about the tight labor market. You got to find bodies to do this. Yeah, since at least December, we've seen campaigns in the news discussing the issues that are running into a signature gathering. One that they often highlight is changes in ballot law. So in several states, the process has changed in recent years. Just to throw some examples out there, Florida banned paper signature, as did Utah and Arkansas. They've instituted a number of other requirements that make the signature collection process I don't want to necessarily say more difficult. It could be more difficult, uh, more tedious. There's more steps. There's more things they have to do, which could be driving up the cost. Pay per signature. That's what you're saying? Right. Pay per signature. So pay per signature is the policy that you can pay people based on the number of signatures they collect. Of course, the other approach, when you ban pay per signature, you can still pay people by the hour. I think advocates of pay per signature will say it's more cost effective, right? On the other hand, right, opponents equate it to bounty hunting, right? So being paid by signature may incentivize misleading words or actions. So this is actually a big issue. Paper signature, banning paper signatures come up in a number of states. Right. And let's not let that obscure the fact that it takes a lot of volunteers to do this, people not getting money. Right. That's true. So campaigns, of course, can also use volunteers. It's not too common these days to see completely volunteer-driven campaigns, but many campaigns have volunteers in addition to paid signature gatherers. And, you know, there's still costs to organizing, training, supervising volunteers. But generally, the more volunteers you have, that will drive down the signature cost rather than driving it up. Ryan Byrne, managing editor of Ballotpedia's Ballot Measure team. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you for having me. And stock in Meta, parent of Facebook, is up 3% in pre-market trading now. The Wall Street Journal has a piece today saying the company is planning what are described as large-scale layoffs this week with ad revenue down and many CEOs predicting recession next year. I'm David Brancaccio, Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. Clearing skies with mid-70s during the day today. Low 40s tonight. Sunny tomorrow, but only in the low 50s. It's 69 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.